Well, let's submit ourselves to his lordship by reading from his word. 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please, be on your guard until morning, and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you uh, sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and it is our desire to grow, not only in our relationship with each other, but in our relationship with you. And we pray that you would sanctify us through your word. Your word is truth. We believe it, and we love it. And uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. When I was... um, a little kid, I had a friend who wanted to become blood brothers with me. And I said, well, what's a blood brother? He'd been reading some story about uh, Indians who wanted to be lifelong friends, and he explained the process to me. So uh, we pledged our lifelong friendship to each other by cutting our wrists and then rubbing the blood together. Now, you kids who are listening, don't you ever try this. Uh, Just because your pastor was stupid when he was a kid doesn't give you the (laughs) excuse to do this. But uh, anyway, we uh, pledged our friendship, became blood brothers, and then we did something even more stupid. We took uh, flint rocks, very, very sharp uh, rocks, and we carved our names into each other's foreheads. (laughs) And... uh, I have no idea. It was an idiotic thing. I guess it was supposed to symbolize that our, our friendship was forever. And I tell you, it took forever for Paul <laughs> to disappear from my head. Years later, I could still see the initials on there. <laughs> oh. So you can see your, your, your pastor has done some foolish things. But anyway, that, that Paul stood in my forehead a whole lot longer than the friendship. <laughs> We broke our friendship, I don't think it was months later, and uh, so much for a lifelong blood brother friendship. Now, in striking contrast, in this book, we see a lifelong friendship that was a true friendship. It was grounded in God's grace, and we're going to see all kinds of lessons that uh, are, are scattered throughout this book, a whole lot better lessons than carving your name into somebody's forehead. I probably should have stopped once I'd carved the name into his forehead, but <laughs> I let him do it to me too. <laughs> 
Now, not all friendships are going to be the kind of deep-seated, kindred spirit friendships that David and Jonathan had with each other. But really, these principles we're going to look at, they apply to all levels of friendship uh, that are out there. And we're not just going to look at horizontal friendships. Uh, Toward the end, I'm going to be applying these principles to the friendship that God has called us into with Himself. And um, uh, there's ten short lessons And the first thing that I see is that class and age disparities did not hinder this friendship in the least. Uh, When you look at the chronology of Saul and Jonathan and David, you discover that Jonathan was 28 years older than David. And yet, if you turn back to chapter 18 and verse 1, uh, it says that uh, the soul of David, uh, excuse me, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Now, thankfully, homeschoolers have learned that uh, you can have good relationships with all kinds of age groups. They're not as peer-dependent as uh, some others are. But peer-dependent America really has robbed itself of many joyful relationships that they could have because it's just not done. You don't have relationships with people who are of different uh, ages, But you can think in the Bible of all kinds of friendships that span the ages. You can think of the relationship between Naomi and her daughter-in-law, or the friendship of Paul and Timothy, or of Moses and Joshua. It's full of examples that did not consider age to in any way be a hindrance. Uh, my mother-in-law, she's great friends with somebody who's about half her age. Another thing under point one that could have been intimidating for David was the difference in social status and wealth and office. But in chapter 18 and verse 4, Jonathan took off his royal robe, uh, gave his royal garments and his armor to David, and it was in effect saying, look, I don't want these things to in any way be a hindrance just because you're from a peasant family, I'm from a kingly family, we still can be friends. In effect is what... Uh, He was saying, we're going to later on apply this to our relationship uh, with Christ, but just on a human level, we needlessly deprive ourselves of the joy of friendship when we give in to such artificial barriers. The second wonderful trait that I see in Jonathan was a willingness to go against the crowd in standing up for for David. Verse 1, Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all his servants that they should kill David, but Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. Now what about all of his servants? You'll remember from chapter 18 and verse 16, it says that all Israel and Judah loved David, and Saul himself says that all of his servants loved David in verse 22. That was probably one of the reasons why he was jealous of David. But uh, when push came to shove and Saul was trying to say, hey, you can't be friends with me and be friends with David. You just stay away from David. Uh, Many of these servants succumbed to the peer pressure of the crowd. They just went along with uh, what uh, he asked for. They were not willing to defend the one that they loved. Now, they may have been uncomfortable with doing what Saul asked them to do, but still they succumbed uh, to the peer pressure. And over time, those who were not willing to succumb, they had to flee into exile right along with David. 
the exiles that we're going to be reading about in later chapters, we're going to be saying they were true friends who stuck with David and they declared his friendship publicly. But you can think of uh, public school experiences, those of you who went to government schools, and, and, and know that sometimes there are these cliques. And if you want to be a part of this group, you can't associate with those other people. There's, this, there's kinds of exclusivity. I recently read a, a New York Times piece on two uh, baseball players, uh, Pee Wee Reese and Jackie Robinson, and there's a picture uh, of those two. It's a statue uh, in your outlines. But the, uh, 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 Jackie Robinson was the first uh, black American to play in Major League Baseball, and the owner of the Dodgers, that was the team that he belonged to, told him, look, you're going to get a lot of racial prejudice if you come in here, and I want you to promise that you will not react verbally or with your fists for at least two years, no matter what provocation may come against you. And Robinson had signed a contract that he would not do that, but it was incredibly demoralizing for him because the kind of racial slurs and and the other things that came against him were very, very uh, demoralizing. Uh, even before he had even started playing, there was a petition going around on the Dodgers team to ask the manager to get rid of him. We don't want to have him on the team. And Pee Wee Reese, who was the shortstop and also the captain of the team, said no. He tried to put a stop uh, to that. But as the beanballs and the spikings and the spittings and the racial slurs started descending on uh, Jackie Robinson, he just felt like he was not going to be able to survive the two years and uh, that his career was at an end. And it came to a head on May 13, 1947 at Crosley Field in Cincinnati. It was an infield practice. And uh, people from the dugout and the grandstands were taunting Robinson with terms like sunshine boy and snowflake and other uh, racial slurs. And Pee Wee Reese had had enough. Uh, he stopped the practice, walked diagonally across the uh, infield, put his arm around Robinson and just stared at the dugout and stared at the, the people in the grandstands until finally their, their jeering stopped. Uh, apparently he did this at his home field as well. Um, and I haven't be able, been able to, to verify that. But what he was doing is he was standing up against a hostile crowd, standing for his friend. And Robinson later says that arm around his shoulder was what saved his career and helped him to keep uh, going on. And it took a lot of guts for Pee Wee uh, to do that. Actually, if you have a name like Pee Wee, maybe you're used to standing up against the crowd. Who knows? <laughs> but that, brothers and sisters, is friendship. Too frequently, Christians allow what other friends say or do to make them cave in on their treatment of a close friend. Perhaps it's laughing at a demeaning joke. Or perhaps uh, it's um, excluding a friend from a discussion. And often people feel badly about that and they try to make up with their friend in private and say, you know, I like you and everything. But a true friend will be a friend in public. He, he's going to be a person who's willing to put his arm around his friend even when the public is standing against him. And uh, it's something, again, we're going to be uh, making application to our relationship with Christ later. The third thing that we see is that Jonathan delighted in David. In fact, it says he delighted greatly in David. 
Now, that's not something you can necessarily make happen. Not everybody connects in the same uh, way with each other. Even though we need to be friendly with everybody, we're not going to be close, deep friends with absolutely everybody. There is something mysterious about how uh, friendships uh, can develop on that level. But there is an incredible joy that comes from such friendship. And so I find it interesting that Jesus... Uh, even though he gave up everything, just about, he did not give up his friendships. Now, there was one friend, Judas, who betrayed him, and he's called a friend uh, of Jesus, betrayed him, and he hurt Jesus uh, greatly. But Jesus stuck close with his true friends to the end. John 13, 1 says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Here's the problem. When you have the incredible joy of a deep friendship like that, it is incredibly painful when you lose that friend or when the friend betrays you. It it just hurts. It really hurts. That's one of the things that made Jonathan and David weep so much in chapter 20, verse 41. Uh, This is one of the reasons for the deep lament and weeping that David went through in 2 Samuel chapter 1 when his friend uh, Jonathan died. And uh, it it can be a very, very troubling thing. You know, when an elderly couple loses their spouse, oh, that's a troubling thing. And that's where the the body needs to come alongside and try to bring comfort and encouragement. Now, you're never going to be able to be a substitute for that spouse. Uh, That pain cannot be dealt with. But you can still come alongside of that person and be an encouragement, just like some of the friends in the upcoming chapters went out with David, and they were an encouragement to, to him, even though he had lost his best friend. Now, sometimes when people go through the pain of losing a friend or being betrayed by a friend, they decide, I'm never going to get close to another person again as long as I live. It's just too painful. They, they just cannot... Uh, stand the idea of going through that pain again. So what they do is they stay shallow in their relationships with everybody. And that's really not healthy. It's not a healthy thing. Fear of another loss just makes the loneliness greater. It's much better to learn how to handle pain in life, how to handle such losses in a godly way and still be able to have relationships. Uh, When Charles Schwab was 70 years old, he was in court fighting yet another frivolous lawsuit, and he won it, but at the end of the court uh, case, uh, he made this declaration in court. He He said, I'd like to say here in a court of law, and speaking as an old man, that nine-tenths of my troubles are traceable to my being kind to others. Look, you young people, if you want to steer away from trouble, be hard-boiled. Be quick with a good loud no to everyone and anyone. If you follow this rule, you will seldom be bothered as you tread life's pathway, except you'll have no friends, you'll be lonely, and you won't have any fun. (laughs) So he was making the point that he could, yes, escape from some of the painful situations that he had been going through if uh, he would just cease being friends with people, he would cease being um, kind to other people. But he said, I would also miss out on the incredible joys in life that I've experienced in having friends. Of course, friendship takes time and effort to develop more fully. And Jonathan and David spent a lot of time communicating with each other. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through five levels of communication. And as we go through these, I want you to evaluate at which level 
of communication Jonathan and David were instantly able to connect on. The first is the cliché level. Uh, These are nice, comfortable, often repeated routines of speech that enable a casual uh, relationship with each other. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, How's your family? Okay, we call these clichés not not because they're bad. I think this is a form of politeness. I use clichés. There's nothing wrong with them. Uh, Some people say, yeah, how are you? I'm fine and all that. That's just hypocrisy. You need to say, I'm terrible, you know, and just let all your feelings hang out. No, the Bible does indicate there's a place for politeness. But really, in friendships, we need to go deeper than the cliché level. This is a way of opening up conversation politely and and entering into dialogue. There's nothing wrong with the cliché level. But the second level is talking about facts. How about them, Huskers? (laughs) Have you seen the quarterback, you know, that they're trying to recruit? He looks like a pretty uh, neat uh, find. I hope he signs up. Uh, Or, uh, you know, have you found that job uh, that uh, you were looking for. No, I haven't found it yet, but I'm still looking. I just hate the job I'm in right now, and the boss has been piling on the work, and you respond, yeah, I, I noticed that you've been uh, missing some Sundays, haven't been able to have any time off. You can go for quite a long conversation just talking about facts, and um, that's good as well. There's a lot of things that you can talk about factually uh, related. By the way, as we're going through these, I want you to evaluate your, how deep your communication with God is going. Because uh, with our communications with God, a lot of times all our prayers are is a whole series of facts that we're giving to the Lord. Lord, I have this need, I have that need, and they have that need. And it's a lot of different prayer requests. And that's good. God calls us to go to this level uh, of praying. Lots of facts that we talk about. And some people say, God already knows that. Well, yeah, your friends already know the things that you're talking about as well. It's a part of relating to each other, communicating. And so uh, sharing facts with each other uh, is an okay thing. The next level of communication is sharing your opinions, your values, your worldview with each other. Now, this can include concerns, expectations, doctrines, personal goals, dreams, desires, aspirations. Okay, what you're doing here is you're sharing who you really are. You know, what are the things I value? What are the things I care about? And this is the level at which many people part company. Because all of a sudden you discover this guy doesn't share the same worldview or the same values that I do. Or maybe they do the same worldview, but not always exactly the same values. And it doesn't need to part you in terms of company. Too many times people, the moment there's any disagreement, I guess we can't be friends then. No, mature friendships, you can share at this heart level of the things that you value. You can have differences and be so secure in your friendship, you're not going to worry about that friendship being destroyed. And you can think even just on the level of Jonathan and David. Did they have disagreements in terms of aspirations and goals and and some values? I think absolutely, yes, they did. I mean, just think of Jonathan. He could have left with David and sided with David, especially the next day after, you know, his dad tries to kill him, throws a spear at him. I mean, he could have thought, you know, I think I better get out of here too. My life's in danger. But Jonathan valued his dad and wanted to maintain his relationship 
uh, with his dad. And what this does is it sets up an internal uh, tension, a kind of a tug of war between David. He wants to be friends with both of them. And here is the interesting thing. Jonathan is mature enough to be able to value his dad, whom he disagrees with, and yet value David, whom he uh, is friends with. And it's wonderful to have a friendship that's able to freely discuss concerns and expectations, worldview, personal goals, dreams, desires, aspirations, without the fears that you're going to inadvertently say something and uh, you're not going to be friends anymore, where you're walking on eggshells. Now, there is a limit to this, and I want to discuss this because if a friend is doing something criminal, obviously you cannot just go along with it. Otherwise, you become a, um, what's it called, an accomplice uh, to the criminality. And I want to give you one example. In Deuteronomy 13, verses 6 through 9, it describes a very serious crime. They don't consider it a crime nowadays, but it's really a very serious crime. It says, if you even have a bosom friend who tries to make you become an apostate, you must not shield him from the death penalty. You must love God more than you love your bosom friend. And in that unusual situation where God calls for his death, painful as it may be, you need to agree with God. Otherwise, you've got an idolatrous friendship and God is in the business of destroying uh, idols. The people who have an, had an idolatrous relationship with Saul because their relationship with Saul was more important than what God said, they ended up being absolutely miserable. It did not help them out in the long run. Anyway, let me read you the first verse of Deuteronomy thirteen six through 9. If your brother, the son of your mother, your son or your daughter, the wife of your bosom, or your friend who is as your own soul secretly entices you, saying, let us go and serve other gods, dot, 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 and it goes through the other verses. If that happens to you, and they're trying to entice you away from God, you should have nothing to do with them. need to turn them over to the state uh, for treason. Now, why would he even have to warn us about that? The reason he has to warn us is when you get into these deeper levels of friendship, there is a tendency to value your friendship so much you're willing to compromise your relationship with God. You're willing to side with your friend over against siding uh, with the Lord God. And so the scriptures help us to recognize both the value and the danger of friendship. Now, interestingly, Jonathan he was able to maintain his closeness with his father without violating his closeness to God. When his father asked him to kill David, he said, no, I cannot do that. He hid David. He does the right thing. Now, the fourth level of communication is communicating your feelings. This is where you feel safe enough to share your deepest emotions and uh, Jonathan and David definitely did that with each other earlier. They did it in chapter 20. They're able to laugh together. They're able to weep together. Now, here, here's something, again, that I find very interesting. In, in Romans, God says that we need to learn how to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, which implies to me that we ought to be able to get to at least this level of communication with everybody in the body, everybody in the church. He's expecting. You may not be the closest friends, but you ought to be able to get to this level of communication. 
The fifth level of communication is the ability to reveal your unique needs with each other and to be vulnerable with each other. Now, that implies that you're going to have a fair level of trust to be able to do this because you can't trust everybody with this fifth level. Obviously, there are some needs that are not appropriate to share with everybody. You're only going to share such needs with your spouse. But there were some needs that David and Jonathan were able to consistently fulfill with each other. Let me just list them. First of all, I need to talk. Let me tell you, that is a real need for some people. And, uh, you know, sometimes people brush others off when they need to talk. And then they wonder, why am I never close to my children? Well, you never take the time to be able to uh, fulfill this need on their behalf. Uh, I need to talk was a need that both Jonathan and David tried to meet for each other. I need you to be open and honest with me. Uh, At one point, David implies that Jonathan is not being honest about his father's attitudes toward him. It's in chapter 20 in verse 9, uh, 20 verse 8. But then in verse 9, Jonathan responds, Far be it from you. For if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then would I not tell you? I mean, he was offended with David's Uh, misinterpretation, and he reaffirmed, look, I am here to be totally open and honest with you. I need to hang out. Uh, Maybe because you're lonely or because you're depressed or maybe you just don't trust yourself to be alone right now. Uh, But there was a lot of hanging out that Jonathan and David did in this chapter and the next. And there are other needs that uh, friends will share with each other. Now, later on, again, we're going to be looking at how Jesus is a true friend uh, to us, even on these deeper levels of communication. Now, here's a fun exercise that you can do. Get a concordance, look up every occurrence of the word together or the words one another. And actually, I've given you a head start in your uh, outlines. I've given several of the one anothering uh, passages for you. But if you want the exercise to be a little bit more manageable, just do Acts through Revelation And look up all of those references, and I think you will be amazed at how many things the church did together. They didn't just meet on Sunday. That's the way American Christianity tends to be. You know, the church, they just meet on Sunday. No, they were constantly doing things in each other's lives throughout the week. They were developing friendships. Now, let me just give you a a few samples here of the kinds of things that that they did together. Meeting together, praying together, Sharing material things together, eating together, advising one another, working together, visiting one another, standing together when under attack. And so what God is basically saying with those one anothering passages, we want people in the church to be friends with each other. It's not just you meet, you know, on a formal basis on Sunday. You're to be involved in each other's lives. And the one anothering and the together passages show you some of the ways in which you can develop that friendship. Roman numeral five. Jonathan protected David. Now, he didn't protect David's sin. In fact, it's not appropriate for for friends to protect each other in their sin. If you're a true friend, uh, there can be sins. Obviously, love overlooks a multitude of sins, but there are going to be sins where you feel, 
I love my friend enough, I need to rebuke him. Isn't that what the scripture says? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. He's talking about bringing a rebuke into your life and it hurts, but you know he did it because he loves you. He doesn't want you going astray. But here in, um, in this verse, it, it talks about him protecting David's life. And the other verses talk about protecting his reputation, his name. So Jonathan told David saying, my father seeks to kill, my father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. So looking out for his safety required a little bit of risk, some forethought, some planning, some effort, but he was willing to do that. Sixth, Jonathan became an intermediary for David. This is one of the functions of a peacemaker. And friends need to be peacemakers. That's one of the function of a good friendship. Verse 3 says, And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. Now, this is a marvelous attempt at being a peacemaker, and it was successful at least for a while. And I appreciate the way that several of you in this congregation have sought to be peacemakers. When you see two people who are alienated, one or two of you, you know, trying to get there and, and bring these people back together again. Uh, to me, it's an indication we've got a, a healthy congregation, that you're not expecting the elders and the deacons to do all the work of the ministry. We're equipping you, right? You're the ones doing the work of the ministry. So thank you. Point seven. This is somewhat related. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul. And let me read verses 4 through 5. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul his father and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he's not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good toward you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Jonathan's almost acting like an attorney for David, but the neat thing is he pulls it off in a way where both Saul and David will be the winner. He's looking for the good side in Saul, and, and Saul did have a good side. We likely don't have anything even remotely comparable to this in the congregation, but really these principles transcend time, they transcend uh, congregations, and it takes effort to speak up for somebody when his name is being trashed. A few weeks ago, one of the young people uh, did this. Uh, there was a, a group of us, and they were talking about another pastor from another church, and he stood up for that pastor. Now, he didn't agree with the pastor's theology or anything else, but he thought, you know, we're really speaking too hard on this pastor, and I really appreciated what this young guy had to say. I think that's exactly what's going on here. We can be like Jonathan if we will refuse to listen to or agree with gossip. We can be like Jonathan when we clear up misunderstandings. We can be like Jonathan when we refuse to speak poorly of brothers and sisters in the Lord. Saul's speaking poorly of David came back to eventually bite him. And I had a beautiful illustration. I'm just going to skip over it, but um, you can ask me about it later. The eighth thing that Jonathan did was to risk his own life by rebuking Saul. It's hard to rebuke people, but you rebuke a guy like Saul, <laughs> you could be in deep trouble. But he did it. Uh, maybe he didn't think at the time that his life was in risk because it wasn't until chapter 20 that Saul actually uh, throws a spear at him. But we've already seen 
Saul can get extremely angry with his family, and so he was risking at least wrath. The ninth thing that Jonathan did was to gain David's safety. Verse 6, So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. So he's saying, As sure as there is a God in heaven, I'm not going to kill David. Which just blows your mind that he's willing so quickly to... um, to uh, try to kill David later. It shows he's taking the name of the Lord in vain. So there's more than one way in which you can take the name of the Lord in vain. But anyway, at least for now, Jonathan's friendship brought safety. The tenth thing that Jonathan did was to restore David to service and fellowship. Verse 7 says, Then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul... And he was in his presence as in times past. I think this is the most natural thing for a friend to want to do is restore a person to service. Why? Because we want to be around such friends. And um, even though Jonathan is not a type of Christ, I just cannot resist comparing this wonderful friendship with the one that we were ushered into uh, uh, through Christ. I want you to go back to Roman numeral one, the first point there. Now, let's just apply this to your relationship to Jesus. Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lord of the universe. He is so far exalted above us, uh, so much richer than us, uh, exalted in wealth and power and social status, in every way that you could think of, that you might think it would be ludicrous for us to even say we are a friend with God if God himself did not call us into that relationship. And yet just as Jonathan took off his royal clothes, traded them with David, Jesus took off his royal glory, became a servant, traded his place with us. He became our substitute so that we could be his friend. And really, you could go through each of these points and see that Jesus continues to be a friend for us. Uh, We might be ignoring his overtures of friendship, and uh, there are many illustrations in the Scripture of how that can happen in the Song of Solomon. Uh, There's one point where the bride uh, kind of, you know, resists the overtures of friendship of her husband. But Jesus is wooing us. He is reaching out to us. Now, look at point two. Jesus was willing to go against the crowd in the Gospels in order to be your Savior and your friend. And He continues to be willing to be a friend. Maybe you've lost your friends. You've lost your loved ones. And yet, in fact, we're going to be singing a psalm about that a little bit, uh, Psalm 27, where David uh, loses uh, a loved one. Well, even when that happens, we can have the delight of having friendship with God. And so... He continues to hold that out to us. Point three is another similarity. Just as Jonathan delighted in David, Proverbs 8.31 says that the Son of God delighted in us sons of men. Psalm 16.3 says, As for the saints who were on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. That's just amazing that he would say that about us. He delights in us. Uh, Proverbs 12.22 says, Those who deal truthfully are his delight. Proverbs 15.8, The prayer of the upright is his delight. 
That's hard for us to fathom how God could do this to us. A whole lot harder than understanding how Jonathan, the prince, you know, could befriend a peasant. It's just, it blows our minds that God is willing to do that. And yet God says he is willing to delight in those who delight in him. He's willing to draw near to those who draw near to him. Point four says that uh, friendships communicate. And God has not only communicated volumes to us through the scripture, but he is communicating to us through natural revelation. Uh, in the whole universe around us. He's put His laws in our heart, the knowledge of Him in our heart. Uh, he manifests Himself to us. He, he, he gives us guidance. He just so richly fills our lives with His uh, communication. In John 15, verse 15, Jesus said, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So he's basically saying, here's an evidence, I'm your friend. I've given you my love letter. I'm communicating to you everything that you need to know, even through the Scriptures. And in going through the rest of the outline. Jesus protects us. He's our mediator. He intercedes for us to the Father. He gave His life for us. He gained our eternal security. He restores us to service and fellowship. We've got an incredibly wonderful Savior. So can you see why I could not resist applying this uh, to our relationship with God? It may seem like a fairy tale that God says, you can be my friend. It just doesn't seem like that could be a possibility, and yet it is. Jesus promised you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And, of course, that brings up the second part of a friendship. Friendships are always two-sided. Uh, you can't be a friend with somebody if he doesn't want to be a friend with you. Okay? You could be reaching out to him, and God reaches out to us, but if we're not willing to respond in kind, we cannot say that we are friends. We may be his bond slaves, we're saved, but we cannot say that we are his Friends, friendship cannot be forced, and we need to give ourselves unreservedly to Jesus to experience the closeness of this friendship. Uh, otherwise, it's not a friendship. So let's progress to uh, uh, this uh, last point here. Point B says that it is God's grace that enables us to be friends like Jonathan. Now, to refuse God's friendship is not humility. When I first became Reformed, I had a wrong conception of God's transcendence and His exalted sovereignty. In fact, I was so overwhelmed with God's sovereignty that I could only bring a request one time. I, I was afraid that I would offend Him if I said it more than once. And there was many different ways in which I was, in effect, saying, who am I to speak uh, to the great God of this universe like that? Let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that is not friendship. That is lack of grace. It is a failure to respond to everything that God has invited us into. For example, going back to point number one again, to say that Jesus is too holy, too exalted, too kingly, too anything for us to be his friend is in, a, in, effect, in effect to despise his offer of friendship. We cannot let point one get in the way of our friendship with God. Now, Satan's going to tempt you to do that. He's going to say, you know, you are such a peasant. You, you are such a sinner. You are such a scumbag. 
Don't ever think you can be a friend with God. That's exactly what Satan wants you to think. And if you've ever thought that way, I want you to turn back with me to chapter 18, verse 4. And I want you to realize that what Jonathan did with David, Jesus has done exactly the same thing for you. Chapter 18 and verse 4. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. They traded clothes. And that's what Jesus has done for us. When we, by faith, accept his friendship, he gives us his royal garments. He brings us into a royal position uh, in his family, a royal status, royal privileges. He gives you his righteousness. He gives you his armor that you can fight with. He gives you his sword, you know, and his arrows, as it were. And to despise that great gift is just unthinkable. He has offered friendship if you will enter into it. Now, you can apply point two in a similar way. You need to be willing to go against the crowd in order to be a friend with Jesus. This is not an option. James 4, 4 says, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Let me put it this way. If you value what the world thinks about you so much that you're ashamed to speak about Jesus in front of them, you're ashamed to put your arm around him in the stadium when everybody's jeering Jesus, you are not Jesus' friend. You're a friend of the world. That's really what that amounts to there. And so what we need to do to be friends with Jesus is be willing to go against the crowd any time that the crowd comes between you and Jesus. So my question is, will you make that commitment? The third thing involved in friendship is delighting in Jesus. Now, if you're bored with Jesus, it may be an indication that you're not yet regenerate, but it may be an indication that you're backslidden. We have these cycles in our lives where we can become uh, backslidden in our relationship. But delighting in God grows more and more as you spend time with God. Let me read you some scriptures that demonstrate this. Psalm 34, 8 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. He's saying you got a taste of this relationship. you got to enter into this relationship. Psalm 36, 8 says the same thing. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. Not just a trickle of pleasures, the river of God's pleasures. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. Psalm 37, 4. The fourth part of your friendship with God involves communication, just like it did with Jonathan and David. I think 2 Chronicles 12, 14 gives the reason why Saul could never be a friend of God. Now, he envied David, that God was with David, but he himself, even though he probably was saved, though there is debate on that, but I think the evidence leans in the, in the direction he was saved, he was in a slave relationship. He really was not a friend of God. Here's, here's the reason. He did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. If you want to be friends with God, Isaiah 55, 6 admonishes you, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Deuteronomy 4, 29, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. And part of that seeking involves praying. Zechariah describes the closeness of the walk that's going to characterize the earth in the future when all of the nations are converted, okay? 
And here's what it says about that. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us continue to go and pray before the Lord and seek the Lord of hosts. I myself will go also. Yes, many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. And of course, God loves to bless us with his friendship when we communicate with him like this. One of the things... Uh, I don't know how long ago it was, when I was reading John Owen, he was the great Puritan writer, wrote volumes like this. But when I wrote, re- read his book on communion with God, it just blew me away, the privileges I have not entered into. It blew me away at how shallow my friendship with God really is. It also motivated me, Lord, I want more of that. I want to enter into this friendship with you. And so I would just urge you, treasure his offer of friendship. Do not neglect it. Now, you could evaluate your friendship with God and with others by all the other points that are there as well. Do you protect God's name or do you take God's name in vain? Some people, you know, think, oh, Phil, you're so, you're so tight, you know, on using euphemisms of God's name. Hey, I can't change your heart. You know, you guys are just robbing yourselves. You're not hurting me. You're robbing yourselves of the blessing of friendship. But if you do not honor God, how in the world can you expect him to be a close friend with you? And he says, the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Some of you guys routinely take God's name in vain using euphemisms. You're robbing yourself of God's friendship. Other things here. Do you seek to be an intermediary who reaches out to those who are estranged from God? Do you speak well of God to others? Are you willing to risk the danger of angering others, perhaps even death, in order to please God? Do you seek the safety of his bride, seek to bring his bride into more fellowship with Jesus? And if your answer is no or, well, a bit, then just ask God, Lord, I want more of this grace of friendship. I want to enter more deeply into fellowship with you. Now, I thought of a number of different hymns that I could have ended with on how do we respond to God's word here. Uh, One of them is more love to thee. And we're not going to end by singing that one. We're going to sing the psalm. And it's a wonderful psalm where David's lost a friend. Anytime you've lost a friend, you've lost a relative, Psalm 27 is an awesome psalm to to, to give. But I want to end this morning by reading this hymn. And then I'm going to close in prayer, asking God, Lord, please help us to become deeper friends with you and with your bride. The hymn says, More love to thee, O Christ, more love to thee. Hear thou the prayer I make on bended knee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. More love to thee. More love to thee. Once earthly joy I craved, sought peace and rest, Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. Let sorrow do its work, send grief and pain. Sweet are thy messengers, sweet their refrain. When they can sing with me, more love, O Christ, to thee. Then shall my latest breath whisper thy praise. This be the parting cry my heart shall raise. This still its prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee, more love to thee.